Adam Bazaga, MD, is an addiction psychiatrist, clinician, researcher, and professor of psychiatry at Columbia University. He conducts research on new treatments for opioid addiction and oversees a national program that mentors physicians treating opioid addictions. He is a UN expert involved in international addiction training and program development. Uh, Dr. Pisaga, thank you for joining me and welcome to the Rehab Podcast. Well, thank you, Mark, for inviting me. I'm, I'm very happy to be here and speak with you. Today we're going to be talking about your new book, which is coming out soon, Overcoming Opioid Addiction, The Authoritative Medical Guide for Patients, Families, Doctors, and Therapists. And I just completed the book, and I really loved it. This is a book that I believe should be in the hands of definitely every doctor, and maybe not just doctors who are currently treating opioid use disorder, but doctors who are considering it, pretty much everybody across the board. Uh, in fact, I was going to ask you about something um, a few years ago, actually 2007, so about 11 years ago. I received a book in the mail that was called Responsible Opioid Prescribing, and it had been sent out by the Federation of Boards, or actually the Federation of State Medical Boards. It was by Dr. Scott Fishman. And I, at that time, it was just, it was great that they, they had, you know, paid for that and sent that book out to us. And it was a, a nice reference to have. I, I feel like this, they should do that with this book. I mean, the, you know, whether it's the Federation of State Medical Boards or some other organization, I mean, if this book could be put in the hands of every doctor in the country, it, it would be really excellent. And, uh, yeah, I think every doctor really needs to read this. Well, I'm, I'm glad to hear that. And that was, that was definitely one of the intentions I had when thinking and then writing the book was that there is a really a lack of knowledge. And for you know, a variety of reasons that we could discuss later, that the, the education about addiction has been really removed out of the medical school education um, and um, then the doctors were expected to deal with patients who had these issues, so how they were able to do that if no one really taught them. So they relied on the kind of common understanding of addictions that is shared by many people in the society, which I think was very, very limiting, and it, I think, in some way contributed to this uh, problem that we have, which the problem that I recognize is a treatment gap, that, you know, there are so many people that have a problem and we have effective treatments, but we are unable to deliver treatment to people. So, so definitely my book was kind of um, in some way trying to fill the gap of knowledge, but I think that much more has to be done to, to actually change that. Um, but I'm glad that, I, that you've kind of noticed that, and I appreciate your um, support. I, I was wondering also, was there ever a consideration of possibly actually making this three or four different books, you know, or maybe... Uh smaller pamphlet versions. For example, if I, you know, I, I'd love for my patients to have this book. In fact, I, I may even make it a requirement and the family members also separately. I just imagine, uh, you know, of course, I'll tell them to get the book or I'll, I'll give them the book and say, you know, read section four if you're a patient, section three, I think it is if you're a family member. Uh, did you ever consider that having actually four separate books? Right. No, I, we, we certainly, I did consider that. But then again, I thought that, um, you know, the book is really based on my experience working with patients and the families. And I, what I've noticed over the years, I end up telling the families and the patients all parts of the story. I tell them about how some people develop the problems because of, again, uh, kind of over-prescribing in a medical setting without paying attention to the potential 
of um, some of those medications to become addictive. And then I tell, definitely tell um, how educate patients in their families why in their case the, the response to the drugs was different than in people, many other people who got you know, painkillers but never develop a, an addiction, you know, how then the medical treatments are able to help overcome some of those vulnerabilities in their brain that cause them to have an addiction. I certainly talk a lot to families about what's the best way for them to deal with having a loved one affected with this problem, how to protect themselves, and also how to be most helpful. And I certainly tell the families and the patients a lot about how to go through the, the necessary processes of, you know, stabilizing on medication and being able then to overcome the problem. So, you know, at the end, I've decided that I, I think there is something from all these perspectives that could be useful to the families and the patients. But then it could also be useful to professionals because professionals need to know how to advise the families and how to help patients go through the process of stabilizing on medication, which they may not know what's like to be a patient in the grips of you know, dealing with, uh, with this kind of very intense physical and emotional experiences when they give up drugs. So I've decided that in some way it could be actually useful for, as you're saying, primarily read the chapter designed for them, but also to have access to the other perspectives. And I would definitely, if they're ready, encourage them to read about the other perspective to have a more kind of complete pictures. And that's why we decided to have it all in one book. It seems like the main underlying message of the book is that medication must be a part of the treatment of opioid use disorder, and it must be part of that treatment of that chronic disease long term. Right. You know, that, that the medical perspective is really necessary to be at the center of treatment, definitely at the beginning of treatment. And again, for some people, it may need to be a part of the, of the kind of long-term treatment. Others may be able to move beyond the medical stabilization and maybe, you know, have the rest of their life in, in a more kind of non-medical um, treatment, focus on recovery work. But that at the beginning of treatment is absolutely necessary because it, the disease is so deadly, right? And uh, unless we provide the medical stabilization, we really don't give patients a, a, a kind of, we, we give them uh, less of a chance to, to, com to kind of conquer it, to come out of it. No, no different than from other serious medical disorder, be it a cancer or some other heart attack, that at the beginning of treatment, it's really important to have a, a kind of stabilized constrain the effect of the disorder on the, on, the, on the brain using medical interventions. And then over time, we can focus on the lifestyle changes, spiritual changes, you know, other support changes, and kind of less so of a, of a medical focus because patients are actually way beyond the most acute phase. So that's, that's exactly, as you were saying, that the medical model at the center of, of treatment and definitely the beginning of treatment for everybody with this disorder. And um, as far as the medications, there, there's three medications that you describe, basically for the treatment of opioid use disorder. We have three medications available, methadone, buprenorphine, and naltrexone. Uh, now, some things, I learned some new things about methadone. I kind of have, have always had a negative view of methadone, and uh, I, I didn't realize that it's the, considered to be the gold standard of treatment and has a 75% success rate. Uh, which is well above the 50% success rate of uh, buprenorphine and naltrexone for people who can get on those medications. 
and, and it seems like you know for some people that may be the answer you know if someone just cannot get to the point of uh i mean and i had a patient in this situation he couldn't get through the uh, even the the whatever the eight twelve or the twelve to sixteen hours to get onto the buprenorphine and that that may be the correct the right option for a lot of people is to get started by by going to a, a methadone program Right. So, you know, as, as I'm trying to make the case over and over in this book that we have uh, three very different medications that may actually offer something different for, um, for, for, for a patient and hopefully we will be able to find the best match for the given patient at a given time. It doesn't mean that they have to stay with this medication for the rest of their life. It means that when we are kind of trying to engage them and stabilize one medication may be more acceptable or, as you're saying, easier to, to, um, to work with than, than other medications. Once the patient is stable, then we have options of either continuing on this medication or actually transitioning them to, to another medication. Methadone seems to be the one that we have the most experience with. We've had methadone since late 60s. We've had millions of people around the world treated with methadone. We have a broad, broad range of scientific literature showing you know how to do this treatment properly you know and that's why it's and and it appears to be when done really well appears to be most effective defined as people who you know are able to have a stable life with improvement of you know physical and mental health and 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 improvement in well-being methadone seems to offer this to more people than other medication you know that's why it's there now of course, methadone has a very tumultuous history in our society and many other societies, and and certainly there is a lot to be talked about that why methadone has such a such a kind of bad reputation in some circles. But yeah, that definitely it's it's a highly effective medication. It's very potent and very effective, but it's you know it's a difficult medication to use. has a lot of restrictions and regulations, which makes it um, unlike any other treatment. The two other medications can be given pretty much in in kind of most medical settings and uh, also give um, you know uh, most patients an option to use methadone as you may know it's available in very few centers around the country primarily urban centers you know methadone programs or opioid treatment programs as they are known these days are kind of very complicated to set up and run and therefore this medication may not be really available as widely as we would hope and, and of course as I know my practice and my patients, of course, know uh, buprenorphine is very, you know, works very well. Uh, patients do very well on it. Uh, and, of course, and as you said, it is possible to uh, transition from methadone onto buprenorphine. And I think, in the, I think in the literature they recommend tapering down on the methadone to 30 milligrams first uh, before going to buprenorphine. I've had some patients transition from a little bit higher because they were just determined that they, they didn't want to go to the methadone clinic anymore. And uh, you know, it takes them a little while to get used to it. They feel sick in a lot of cases for for the whole first month, but then they do really well after that. And, and the buprenorphine, it's incredible. And I think you even describe it in the book. It's very rewarding for a doctor to see the change that happens. And and I sometimes don't recognize my patients when they come back. You know, after three or four weeks, I mean, they, they look like completely different people sometimes walking in. Well, that that's really interesting uh, to hear that, and that certainly. That's certainly true that um, the change is pretty dramatic, especially in people who are, you know, coming to using heroin every day and really have their life really completely wrecked. You know, they're in severe depression, hopeless, you know, on the verge of thinking about ending their life. 
coming to you for help, and then you you know start them with buprenorphine, and and it's like in a few days they they start kind of being amazed of how, how is it possible that they can feel so differently so quickly, and then you see them every week after that they have even more and more of this kind of enthusiasm, uses for life, and of course. The, often depression goes away, they start being hopeful. You know, th- this may not last, you know, because that, then the reality of daily life hits them back, but definitely the change is pretty pretty dramatic, pretty powerful. Unlike, you know, very few treatment in psychiatry that we have that the change may be so um, so quick. So it's extremely rewarding for the doctor and, I'm, you know, and for therapies for someone else to see that patients can suddenly feel so so well so quickly and you want to be a part of this right you want to share this with a patient you want to tell others about that patient want to tell others about that and and you know that's why we are in helping professions to be a witness to this change and um and you're absolutely right that uh, wish more people had uh, more doctors and therapists had opportunity to witness that in fact it works so well that it, it, it almost works too well that in some cases and i think you also describe this in the book uh, that that some patients feel they're doing so well, they feel like they're cured, and and I've had this happen with patients where they they try to quit their medication, and they may even feel fine for the next day after quitting it, and then they realize, wait, I'm getting sick again, and then sometimes they even get upset, like, well, you know, now I've just traded one addiction for another, and you know, I'm dependent on something else, and you know, and and you, you go into this in the book, you're not you're not really when you go from say heroin or oxycodone onto buprenorphine, you're not really trading one addiction for another. It's, it's not an addiction when you're on uh, medical treatment. Right. So, so I think it's important that the pa- because, again, the patients have these notions about what it should and should not be um, the part of treatment, and they are strongly influenced by, by those notions, and many of them are not kind of accurate or, or, or use the perspective that it's not a medical perspective, so it doesn't really match their experience. But you're absolutely right. They are... Uh, this notion that because you are taking medication every day and if you stop the medication you feel unwell, that means that you're addicted. You know, I, I can understand how people who are uh, who have not been, you know, uh, working with patients or actually addicted may feel that way, but that the patient cannot see the difference from what's like to be addicted, where your mind is constantly preoccupied with getting the drug and doing whatever it takes, destroying their lives to, to, to have a supply of the drug, and a physical kind of discomfort uh, because they, med- they don't take medication every day and there is some you know, physiological adaptation. While the families can maybe think that way, oh, they're taking medication, that means that they've been taking painkillers, now they're taking this, it's kind of the same. But the patients, I think, would be easily taught or worked with to reframe how they are thinking about themselves, that this is not really an addiction, that they need the medication to have a stable life, and they rely on medication, they are dependent on medication to have a stable life, but they are certainly not addicted to the medication because they can have a normal life, they can devote their energy and time to pursue other things in life. Most of them don't really think much about taking medication, except that you know that every morning when is the time for next dose, they think about the, the medication and that's about it. And the rest of the days they are you know devoting to other pursuits in life, um, which is very very different from addiction, right? And and also uh, you know with buprenorphine. Uh, you know, people when they're taking heroin and other opioids, abusing them or misusing them, they, you know, their their thinking is clouded. You know, they're of course they're also constantly thinking about, you know, how do I get the next dose and how do I keep from getting sick. But they they also 
because of the drug itself, they're not thinking clearly. And people, when they take buprenorphine, they tend to, their thinking clears up. They have a, a clarity of thinking and, you know, they're able to, to do their daily activities a lot better and function better. Right, right. A- absolutely. So their mood is stable because there is no up and down of on and off the opiates. They are not sedated or in physical discomfort through the withdrawal, which is a part of being on, on heroin or painkillers. They are pretty much even stable throughout the day, which is what medications do. They cannot stabilize the, the functioning of your opioid system. So, um, you know, the, 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 the most destructive for your brain is the kind of constant changes up and down, which again have negative impact on your cognition, on your mood, on your, of course, sleep and wake cycle, on your feeding and on your sex functioning, on everything else that, that we are about as human beings. Not having a stability, it kind of interferes with. And then when you're on medication, whether it's buprenorphine or naltrexone, that keep the system on a the, on the kind of very constant level, uh, that allows the body to kind of reset um, the kind of, you know, normal physiological functioning in all those spheres that you mentioned, which, again, is very different than addiction. So, so those two points, again, should make everybody realize that taking medication every day is not like an addiction to the medication. Um, if you have a good response, of course, there are patients who don't have a good response, and um, that's another story to discuss, but 50% or more have an excellent response to medication. And in those people, you know, they couldn't be any, their life couldn't be any different while on medication as compared to their life um, when they were addicted um, before they started medication. Now, with uh, buprenorphine and the most common brand being Suboxone, in fact, a lot of people just call all of it suboxone they call the, the clinic you know the, they call the doctors who who prescribe it suboxone doctors and suboxone clinics with suboxone or suboxone or buprenorphine a uh, a common starting dose is uh, for a lot of people i think is 16 milligrams a day now just for example just say that you have a there's a patient who stabilizes very early on at 16 milligrams a day they have no problem with side effects they're functioning very well in their life and they, they kind of are in a critical situation of that they, they have a job they can't afford to, to lose. They, they're taking care of children, and they're doing really well. Is there any, is there any reason, any physiological reason why uh, the doctor should start pushing that patient at some point in the future and say, well, it's time to start trying to cut, to, cut back a little bit. We need to go down to maybe 12 and 8 milligrams and stabilize it at the lowest effective dose. Because how do you know what the lowest effective dose is and, and that they might, maybe they'll start having breakthrough cravings at some point? No, you're absolutely right that somehow people expect then that treatment with buprenorphine will be different than treatment with any other psychotropic medications, right? That that somehow the goal should be to get people off medication as soon as possible as opposed to provide stability. So that there's one kind of difference that I think is reflected by this, uh, by this tendency of patient adapters to lower the dose. Uh, of, of course, if the we try to find the right dose, which is that the most effective with the least of the problematic adverse or side effects. And sometimes people do have side effects on higher doses, right? They may be, they may be sedated, although that's rare. You know, often they may be sweating too much or they may have a sexual problems or they may have swelling in their feet. You know, sometimes there are some side effects, although they are, they are rare. And then we do try to lower the dose to try to um, kind of preserve the beneficial effect without the side effects. And then lowering the dose is absolutely justified. People do want to see that they're making progress, and people do want to see that they're making progress towards the goal 
which in their mind is a life without the medication. And I can certainly understand that. Who wants to take medication for years or for the rest of their life? And, and that certainly could be indicated to think about, to work with a patient on lowering the dose. I, in my experience, most patients kind of tend to, over time, lower the dose. There are certainly a group of patients that want to just have a guarantee beneficial effects and they stay on the same dose, but many patients tend to gravitate to lower doses. So patients who've been on medication more than a year or two, they tend to be closer to 8 milligrams rather than 16. And some people who've been on medication for 10, 15 years tend to be on very low doses, 1, 2 milligrams, sometimes 4 milligrams. And that's certainly appropriate as long as they are open to monitoring how they're feeling and, you know, how their life is going. Uh, making sure that they tolerate medication well. So yeah, I don't think, in other words, uh, that wouldn't be any different from treating patients with any other psychotropic medication, be it antidepressant, mood stabilizer, anti-anxiety medications, when you would at first try to maintain the clinical response, and then over time you do try to maybe lower the, the kind of medication load uh, with the idea that less medication is better for the, for the body. But there's not a, a definite protocol and i know that there's no one size fits all but as far as like you know there's no no need to push the patient and say okay that's your first month at 16 now we go to 12 then we go to 8 or or maybe not that fast but you know person so a person could in theory stay on on say 16 milligrams for a long time and then when, when the patient's ready and they've been doing well in counseling uh then, then you know that we, we can ask the patient right, do you feel like you're ready do you want to try going back a little down a little bit Right, right, or or listen to the patient because patient may have an interest. Most patients do have interest to maybe take, uh, again, a little bit less of the medication and you help them get there. So I think that the main problem we have is that patients come off medications too quickly. That's the primary problem. You know, most patients, on average, patients stay on buprenorphine from anywhere three to six months, and that's clearly not enough on average. It may be appropriate for some patients, but majority of patients need to be on medication for for at least longer. Uh, so so the, the, the most of the time we try to kind of encourage patient to stay on medication rather than encourage him to come off. That's how it should be. That's what the evidence tells us. Now, of course, the practice may be very different, and you can certainly see the doctors who have a limited understanding of addiction. They haven't had much experience working with these patients over a long time. They haven't seen devastating effect of relapses. They may feel like coming off medication should be uh, uh, one of the goals up on the list. I'm always saying that the medica- coming off medication should be one of your treatment goals, but should be really very, very low on the list. On the top of the list should be, of course, to, to stay alive, to stay healthy, uh, be able to move on with your life, have uh, all the other things that addiction may prevent you from getting, that we should be focusing on working uh, in treatment and medication, stopping medication should be really very low on the list. Uh, as it is with any other chronic medical illnesses, right? When you treat someone with diabetes, you don't really have coming off insulin as one of the primary goals of treatment. Uh, you, you have it. Some patients are able to come off insulin or, or oral anti-diabetic medications when they have made all the other changes in their life, but that is never on top of the list. And, and somehow we want to have the same approach um, for, for treating of addiction. Now, with, when it comes, for example, when it comes to, to vaccinating children, uh, you know, sometimes people get confused because they, they look at stuff online and they see you know, these anti-vaccinating movements where they say, well, vaccines are dangerous, they can cause uh, further illness, or it's the, the drug companies are trying to make profits by selling us vaccines. And they have all these 
great sounding arguments against vaccines. But the truth is vaccines are important for protecting the population and, and doctors are responsible for the medical community is responsible to educate the public that vaccination is important. Now, we have the same problem with the treatment of opioid use disorder or opioid addiction, where we have people that, that are in a position of, of influence, people running uh, treatment centers uh, for addiction, you know, that are saying either medication is it should not be used at all or it should only be used for a very short period of time, maybe one or two weeks or a month at the most. And, and that's that's a dangerous uh, position. And they're the ones who are educating the public. And so, we, you know, it's almost like a minority of the medical profession is providing the correct information. And, and in my case, I, I'm completely in line with what you're saying. But I, I even feel that influence when patients say, you know, I only want to take this for two weeks. And, you know, I start feeling guilty, like, who am I to tell them they have to be on this for uh, for years and years? No, absolutely. You're absolutely right. And I think it is changing. And we certainly, I hope that this book and, and the work that my colleagues and myself have been doing will help to provide the change faster, you know, but 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 it, it is still the dominant model is a very traditional non-medical when the medication were always kind of used only as an adjunct treatment for a very short time during the detox. That's really how, you know, what was the role for doctors in treating uh, opiate addiction was only to, to provide some relief of withdrawal at the beginning of treatment before the re, quote unquote real treatment could take place, which you know, the treatment, of course, done by peers, the, the behavioral treatment. And so with this kind of model still predominant in most of the treatment facilities, you know, no wonder that you hear this kind of opinion as, as a primary one and the voice of the medical professionals, the scientists, the, the people who have, uh, have evidence behind them uh, doesn't, you know, is not heard as, as much. Now, this, this is changing. A lot of leading addiction treatment programs like Hazelden Bedford have certainly been um, saying, you know, they've changed the view of the use of medication in the last few years, and that's very encouraging. But it's still a minority of the leading non-medical physicians associated with programs or just the, the program leaders that is giving this, this new message. I think the traditional treatment industry still really is in the, in the kind of process of changing how they see addiction, not only about using the medication, but also about using harm reduction strategies as a viable goal of treatment. You know, those are the two kind of changes that we see that traditional programs are evolving. And, you know, you do hear voices, as you say, people saying, oh, addiction should not be treated with medication, or if you really need medication, you should really come off, as, off it as soon as possible. But what do we do when we hear the voices? Of course, we have to counteract those voices with a different, right, opinions. And it's not an easy process because you don't want to alienate the whole treatment industry. They have a lot to offer. You know, they have a lot of experience working this population using behavioral methods that can be all very valuable. To me, it all has can have a value as long as people pay attention to the medical component. I don't think that they have a value without the medical component because, again, they are sending and conflicting messages to the patients. And patients really don't know much, right? Patients are only relying on their friends and families, and they cannot really differentiate why this doctor says to use medication for as long as possible, why the other doctor says not to use the medications, they, they, they do get quite confused, and that's not, not, not fair to the patients, you know. Yeah, and, and hopefully, like you say, that this book will get out there, get into the hands of doctors, patients, families, and therapists, 
and the word will get out there. And, and that's another thing. When we refer patients to a psychologist or to a, a drug counselor, you know, there's always that fear. Uh, for example, there, there's a psychologist I'd referred some patients to it, who, who has uh, decades of, of experience. He's certified in addiction treatment. Uh, he's credentialed. He has, you know, decades of experience. And, um, you know, then I'm concerned, you know, what if he's telling my patients that they shouldn't be on medication? And, uh, you know, and, you know, how do I know that when I'm doing all the right things of referring patients out to the therapist and to the meetings, that maybe they're going to get the wrong message and, and just stop their medication, not come back and maybe relapse. And it, it's a scary thing to even try to do the right thing and recommend patients, you know, you need to see your, your psychologist and, you know, and, and, and develop a support network because those wrong messages could, can come from anywhere. Right. No, absolutely. And the part of my book, the, the one devoted to families, is to how to find a right treatment provider or the right treatment program. What are the questions you really want to ask? Uh, and when do you can trust your loved ones or yourself, you know, to go to this provider? And when you should uh, look for someone else, you know, that uh, how to differentiate that and and again, it may be kind of complicated, but guiding patients through this process is very important. And as you were saying, you know, there's so much that patients can take advantage of from the traditional program, uh, from the self-help groups, and of course, from the, from the even certified providers that use um, specific behavioral treatments, that, that it will be a shame to kind of completely separate them from the medical model of treatment. I, I really hope that those models can be integrated um, but, but sometimes you have to, you know, say that's not a good idea. A lot of, as you know, self-help groups, especially the ones that are um, grew out of the NA, Narcotics Anonymous Movement, far out reject the use of medications. They still, in their uh, charter, I think, uh, reject the idea of uh, medications as a part of treatment. They do, do not consider anybody who's taking medication as meeting the criteria for sobriety. I find that AA groups are a little bit more flexible, uh, because their you know medications to treat alcohol have been around for 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 a little bit longer or at least been present at the groups for longer, so they are a little bit more forgiving and uh, but but it's a loss because n a i think still has um, you know a lot of um, a lot of value um, but yeah, people get confused you when you say certified addiction treatment provider, you think that this person is using evidence based latest right treatment methods and you would trust the certification. But, but the reality is people get certified even though they, are, uh, they do not believe what the science tells us about treatment. They have an opposing views, yet they get certified. That's one of the many, many problems that we still have to solve. Uh, the same way treatment programs may be licensed to provide treatment, yet they do not um, accept the use of medication, but they are licensed by the state. How can you, and they are licensed by the state to use public public funds, right, to fund for treatment. How is it still possible? I think we have a lot long to go. We are changing something. You know, there have been in the last years very dynamic efforts to change that, but, um, but I think it's not changing fast enough because epidemic is still ravaging the, the country, and, and as everybody knows, it doesn't seem to be slowing down, if anything, accelerating. Yeah, and, and I was going to bring that up, actually, about uh, Narcotics Anonymous, or NA, and for years I, I've Loved NA. I thought it was like the greatest thing ever. And, and originally, that was my goal. I first took the eight-hour course for uh, buprenorphine prescribing in, I think, 2006. And, and I did some research, and I came to the conclusion my goal should be get everybody in, into NA. And, and at that time, you know, they're talking about tapering people off medication faster. And, and I thought, well, that's the goal. Get them in NA, get them a support group and working the steps and having a sponsor 
and and they can be prepared for that coming off their medication uh, quickly. And and more recently, you know, I, I've looked into it, and I, there's NA has a document called Bulletin 29 from 1996, uh, where they they talk about methadone uh, being if you take methadone, you're not considered to be clean. You can sit in on a meeting, of course, but you're not clean. Twenty years later, in 2016, uh, another document called uh, NA and People on Medically Assisted Treatment, where they, they specifically talk about buprenorphine. Again, they say if you're on what they call replacement medications, you're not considered to be clean. You can sit in a meeting. Uh, you cannot participate. You can't do service. Probably a sponsor is not going to work steps with you. And I think later, another document changed that where they said uh, it's up to the group if they, if they want to allow you to share or not. But but you still can't go any further than that, right? So they're evolving, you know, hopefully in the right direction. Uh, but it is difficult because the whole identity, right, that the principles of the movements are based on this, you know, group confessional. When you confess to your, um, you know, to your limitations and your, you know, in some way it kind of perpetuates a little bit of the of the moral um, view of addiction. Uh, that you're somehow responsible for for, for um, what's happening to you. You have to take personal responsibility, of course, for the behaviors. And then, you know, it's all, a lot of this is true, but it kind of still reinforces the the, the, the view that that it's up to you and only up to you to change your ways and your behaviors and kind of revert the behaviors that are hallmark of addiction that uh, cause you to wreck your lives, as opposed to you know, that there is a part that you should be taking care of and watching, but there is a part that is just too difficult, impossible for most people to change. Now, some people can do it, but most cannot, that has to really take advantage of all available treatments. And now that we have a treatment, you should get a little bit help because without it, what we know what's happening, right? The untreated OP dependence is the, the most lethal of all psychiatric disorders. You have 2% of people every year dying. And, um, and it is indeed, uh, I think, unethical to um, to refuse or reject, especially by program. You know, everybody has right to do what they want to do. Of course, uh, we live in a free country. But but if you're gonna really uh, use the public funds and you're gonna really have a uh, kind of regulatory oversight of the programs, it's unacceptable to to still allow programs exist that that refuse the the evidence. I mean, that's at least my my kind of view on that. Um, it, it's it's difficult. Yeah, it's difficult because um, very complicated, you know, kind of multifaceted system and treatment system and multifaceted, uh, you know, problem that that we deal with that um, that opioid addiction is. I, I, just for example, I had a patient who came in once and uh, he he was transferring from another doctor and I think he had been on buprenorphine for uh, I think it was at least two years. He was doing very well. His first um, visit with me, I, I mentioned going to meetings. And right, right away before I could finish my sentence, he said, I don't go to meetings. I'm doing very well with my treatment. And I, I said, I'm sorry, and I, ne- I never mentioned it again. Uh, you know, I'm not going to get in the way of something that's working. You know, but I, I know for other people, meetings may, may be the best thing for them. And, you know, everybody's different. So, uh, you know, there's no one-size-fits-all therapy that you can just use a cookie. You can't really use a cookie-cutter approach for every single patient. Right, right. But I think for those people that are really very connected to the 12-step fellowship, that really benefited from that, that really love the camaraderie and, the, and of course, the, the kind of way of living, 
uh, in sobriety. I think for those people, maybe uh, the naltrexone may be an uh, alternative, um, you know, attractive alternative, right? Because I think most groups would be more forgiving when they see someone being maintained on naltrexone, which is again non-opioid. Um, or at least, you know, it's an opioid, but it doesn't produce opioid effects. It's a medication that blocks opioidergic system, and uh, it's not a replacement therapy, or at least cannot be considered replacement or substitution therapy. Still helps with um, maintaining abstinence, preventing relapse, decreasing craving. You know, and and many people I've heard that are feel much more comfortable themselves being in a group. Again, not being on buprenorphine, but rather being on naltrexone as a way to help them you know, remain abstinent. Um, so, so that's, I always suggest for people who, you know, that's one of the decisions that, that we consider at the beginning of treatment, which medication to go. Do they want to be detox and be on naltrexone to prevent relapse or do they want to go on buprenorphine? You know, that's one of the, uh, the things that we discuss when, um, you know, I try to talk to them about various options of getting help and what are the differences. Yeah. And naltrexone is of the three medications. It's the only one that's it's a, not an opioid. It's not controlled. It's uh, any doctor can prescribe it without any special training. And in fact, a doctor who's not even registered with the DEA could prescribe it. Any any doctor can prescribe naltrexone. Right, right. And it's not quote quote unquote cannot be abused. So quote unquote is non addictive. So it cannot really be misused. And you know, some people just just like this idea a little bit more. I do not try to see show patients that there is, is somewhat superior, kind of morally superior medication. You know, I think they are both equally good choices and it should be, you know, equally good first-line treatments. But, but uh, you know, for some patients, those differences may be important. You're absolutely right. Now, now so if a per, if a patient comes in and, and you did discuss this in your book, and I wasn't sure about this before, uh, a patient comes in who's abstinent. They've Somehow, whether by going to treatment or on their own, uh, they haven't used any kind of opioid, including buprenorphine, uh, for, say, two to four weeks or even longer. And now they come in and they're concerned. They want to, they want to be on some kind of medical treatment. Now, suppose the first thing I would, I would recommend would be naltrexone because they, they're abstinent, so why put them back on an opioid? Uh, now, now, suppose the patient says, I have reasons not to take naltrexone. I didn't respond to it well before. I don't want to take it. I'd rather take buprenorphine. Now, the patient has a negative drug urine screen. They, they admittedly have not been taking any, any opioid for, for uh, at least weeks. Uh, now, I think in your book you do say that, that if the patient requests that we can put them on buprenorphine. Uh, is that correct? And, and how would we start that? Would it be at a lower dose? Right. So, so you're, you're absolutely right that, um, you know, for methadone, you're right, you cannot start methadone in someone really who is, um, who is not physically dependent, right? It's pretty clear there are regulations. Uh, how do you start methadone? What are the good, good candidates? And you, uh, you would not put someone on methadone in that case. But for buprenorphine, there isn't really any, any regulations or guidelines, you know, if they, still have OP dependence, and of course the fact that you've been abstinent for a few weeks doesn't mean that you got cured out of your OP dependence. We know that those patients will have cravings, urges, will, you know, under stress, will have uh, increased risk of relapse. We know that if you don't treat them, they will, you know, a lot of them will relapse sooner or later. So if you can offer the medical treatment that will prevent it, 
you know, that is certainly um, a viable medical intervention and nothing really stops you from offering that. Of course, patient has to understand that they will be dependent physically again. You know, once they start buprenorphine, they need to take it every day. You're absolutely right. The doses may be, may be lower, less than 8 milligrams, maybe 2, maybe 4 milligrams. They, they probably uh, wouldn't need higher doses. And... You know, and then you'll start induction like like you would do. Again, you, 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 there's no physical dependence, so there's really no wait period. You, you will just start prescribing the medication and try to find, um, you know, keep them on a dose, uh, and then hopefully help them stay with this uh, for as long as possible. I mean, it is absolutely uh, for some groups of patients are at very high risk. You know, the ones that you mentioned are, of course, people coming out of rehab or people coming out of prison, right? Those are the very high-risk groups. We know that your risk of overdose death is, goes up by eight times when you're leaving those type of facilities because, again, you are returning to your environment where you have all these cues and triggers and stressors that somehow maintain your addiction before. And, of course, you have no tolerance to protect, so your body has no defenses to protect against overdose. So you have a double kind of whammy that puts you at risk of relapse and overdose. And and it's absolutely essential that people do understand those risks and do have a choice of restarting medication that will decrease those risks, that will decrease craving surges, and they will protect them with a little bit of the, the blocking. Buprenorphine also can uh, protect against overdose if people use because it is very tightly bind to the receptors and it prevents heroin from getting onto those receptors. So there is certainly a, a medical reason. And as long as the patient fully understands the, 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 the implications of starting this medication and you have a discussion, you check that they do understand risk and benefits, I think it's fairly justifiable. And I think most of my of the people with you know, who do this work would agree that this is a viable treatment option. Again, it has changed. You know, it hasn't been seen like that maybe 10 years ago, maybe 15 years ago when buprenorphine came to the market. But right now with this opiate epidemic and the fentanyl overdose deaths, I think most of, of us would feel that this is a, a, a right medical decision. That makes sense. Now, another thing that has happened you know, more than once uh, with patients that have come in, a patient comes in and they've, they've stopped taking heroin uh, the day before. You know, they knew they were coming in. They wanted to be prepared. They wanted to start treatment right away. Uh, maybe a patient comes in with their husband or wife, and uh, and they want to start right now. And and you know, we do our evaluation, and everything everything looks good. And you know, we uh, give them the prescription to get the medication. And and now that patient who's feeling very sick and just can't wait to get started, they go to the pharmacy, and the insurance says you need a prior authorization. And, and I know, in I think in two thousand eight, with part of the Affordable Care Act was passed, I think it's called the Parity Act, or has a longer name, but there's a law that, that guarantees that everyone will get the same coverage for addiction and mental health conditions as they would get for any other condition, and, and these patients who may have been able to get prescriptions for oxycodone paid for without a question are, are now, now the doctors are given long forms to fill out. The doctor fills out the form. I, I do them online. In fact, for any doctors listening, uh, if you don't use covermymeds.com, it makes it very easy to get our <laughs> authorizations. Um, yeah, so, so I'll go and cover my meds, I'll fill out the form, and then they start asking questions, they want more information, and some insurances will just flat out, you know, they'll, they'll, they make it, they put up roadblocks, they make it very difficult, and now the patient is sick, and they're calling, and they're saying, what do I do now? And uh, is, is, do you know of any, are there any tricks to, to make these insurances? Right. Do, do, you know? <laughs> 
Yeah, no, no, that's absolutely right. That's a very, of course, I can hear the frustrations your voice, and we've been all, all we've been through that because we know how essential it is to provide this treatment as soon as possible. How great of a risk the patient is at if they don't get treatment when when they are ready, and so it's extremely frustrating that bureaucrats are making this decision. And sometimes you, some of those pre-screening questions make completely no sense and. I don't want to waste time to to give examples, but but uh, the, the so the tricks are two, twofold. You know, I do tell patient is that most likely the medication will be approved, and you should probably get far. You know, ask pharmacists to give you a small supply of medication. You pay out of pocket. You start treatment, and once we get you approved, you will then uh, many insurance will reimburse you back. This has been a well identified problem, and many municipalities or, or you know are are kind of making sure that this doesn't happen. And so there is a law at the local level, at the state level, that prevents it. And I know my state, New York State, have done this law that right now no insurance company can really ask for pre-authorization, that it's illegal um, to do that because, you're right, it's, uh, it, it should be consistent with the Parity Act, but, but still it was a, a widespread practice, even though the Parity Act was on the books. So, so those are the, the – I think this is changing and I think what I, what I tell patients, again, uh, my trick is that they should really just buy a few medications. You can get coupons. Many of the brand, branded preparations offer you coupons to offset some of the costs in starting treatment. That also could be helpful for some patients. And again, you're hoping that most insurance will cover this. This is a very inexpensive medication as compared to many medications that they are paying for. And it's a life-saving medication, and, and there is really no, no reason, and we should be outraged if it's going to be treated any other way. Uh, so, so hopefully that this will, this will be uh, less of an issue in the future, and some of the legislation hopefully will target that. Oh, I wanted to ask you about plain buprenorphine, which a lot of people call Subutex, but I, I don't think the brand Subutex is around anymore. And, and I think in some, some states there may be, even be laws about this or it may be more difficult. But do you consider that, that it's acceptable in many cases if, if a patient can't, say they're uninsured or they, they're having difficulties with the insurance process, to use uh, the buprenorphine uh, as a cost-saving measure? And it makes it accessible for the uninsured. But then I know there's a concern with you know, not using the uh, abuse deterrent which is present in Suboxone and Zubsoft. Right, so that's a little bit, little bit complicated, of course, and it's really case by by case basic. In principle, you would really want to use a combination product, which is buprenorphine with naloxone, because it it tend, it seems to have a little bit less of an abuse ability. Of course, there is there is no absolute protection. The the combination pro- product can also be misused and abused, but certainly has a lower lower rate. Um, and that there is a perception in the community that, that Subutex is somehow more attractive medication because it doesn't have this, uh, this, this deterrent, as you're saying. So it has a higher market value. And again, some people may be more readily, if people are set on, on misusing the medication, which some patients can certainly are, they may be more, more readily to do that with the mon- monoproduct, the, the Subutex or the buprenorphine-only tablet. So you have to be very careful how do you work with patients who is treated with this medication. You probably want a little bit closer monitoring of this patient. You know, we have a ways of making sure that the patient takes medication properly. You can certainly uh, give smaller doses. You can have a medication callbacks. You know, you can even look at the blood level, uh, urine level of buprenorphine and its metabolites to make sure that the 
patient is taking medication, um, you know, using the proper route. If that's the only way the patient is going to have treatment, of course, you don't hesitate provide treatment. It's just you you will need to have a little bit closer monitoring. Um, uh, at the same time, buprenorphine, the monoproduct, is of course preferred uh, choice for for pregnant women because you know there seems to be a little bit more concern with um, teratogenicity of the of the naloxone um, as opposed to buprenorphine. So th- in this population, is definitely medication of choice. In any other patient population, um, they should be offered combination product, uh, unless, as you're saying, it's not um, you know feasible for them. And you know, there is a lot of clinical you know issues how to manage patients. You know, there is certainly. Again, you know, there, for patients who don't have optimal response, there is many ways that clinicians have developed how to deal with uh, and help patients have a better treatment response. And certainly I don't want, you know, we don't have time to go into that here, but I just have to let people know that there is this um, uh, uh, mentoring support and training program, PCSS, Providers Clinical Support System, that disclosure I'm a part of, and we do offer a lot of uh, opportunities for physicians to get access to to mentoring, to discussion lists, to small group discussions. A lot of materials have been produced and are available for free uh, that help physicians with all those clinical, you know, decisions that they have to make um, to make you know to make them feel more comfortable and supported when they decide to take on this treatment. Because, as you probably know, a lot of physicians are very. Uh, uneasy when they do start offering this treatment to, to the patients. Most of them, I have to say, feel actually that this was a, one of the best decisions they've made after they've treated, you know, 10, 20 patients. They feel that there was really no reason why they were so hesitant and they like it. But but there is still a, a big, um, I think, barrier for entering into the treatment. Um, and it, unless we have more physicians offering this treatment, we're not going to really have any grip on the epidemic. I, I think the, the, the best way to uh, start combating the epidemic is to offer treatment, uh, which is the way that, of course, all Western countries in Western Europe were able to combat their, their epidemics. Um, and, you know, this is not the only epidemic, of course, that, that has happened in the past um, around the world. So we have models of how healthcare system and physicians responded to other epidemics. And, um, you know, hopefully we'll have more physicians. Again, my call is for more physicians to be open to provide this treatment. Uh, it's no different, more, no more difficult than prescribing painkillers, um, which physicians seem to be very comfortable doing. Uh, and I would encourage that physicians also give a chance and try offering this life-saving treatment because, as you were saying, it can be a very, very rewarding experience. And, of course, you know, it can be very helpful to the community that you're working with. And again, you, you had mentioned that you're, you're involved with uh, PCSS, uh, and the website for that is uh, pcssnow.org, pcssnow.org. I've been a member for, I think, the last three years at least, and yeah, I was, I was introduced through, I, w- I went to a, um, I think it was 2015, I went to an osteopathic convention in Orlando, and uh, I, I spent my entire time in the, the addiction lectures, and uh they they introduced us to the program. They gave us the literature, and I, I went online, signed up, and I got a mentor. It's all all free. It doesn't cost anything. You can get you know your own personal mentor. There's, there's no uh, grading or anything. You don't get graded by your mentor. It's just somebody to ask questions and talk to. And uh, you know there's tons of paperwork and information and a lot of education. I mean every everything you ever want to know about how to treat patients with buprenorphine with opioid use disorder is available at uh, pcsnow.org. 
uh, I'd highly recommend uh, every doctor, you know, go look that up and, and, and get involved and sign up. It's Again, it's completely free. doesn't cost anything. Right. So this has been um, available from early on, from like le- early 2000, when um, there was a need to support providers uh, to start prescribing buprenorphine. It was called PCSSB at the beginning. And then over the years, the, the grant was renewed and it kind of the organization evolved. And, you know, we, myself and my colleagues from Columbia University came to this about six years ago, six, seven years ago, and we've been integral part of this since. Uh, again, trying to, you know, provide, uh, develop educational materials, trying to figure out what kind of support clinicians would benefit the most from offering, of course, buprenorphine waiver treatment, uh, buprenorphine waiver courses that are necessary to, to have a DEA approval to offer this medication. And uh, it, again, it has been a very rewarding, if I may say, you know, uh, for, for myself, equally rewarding to treating patients has been to convince physicians to, to take a leap of faith and start treating these patients uh, with buprenorphine or even more so naltrexone because many, many people are very, um, you know, maybe familiar with buprenorphine but will be hesitant to offer naltrexone and then when they do offer extended release naltrexone, they feel equally excited about this opportunity. So it's been very uh, also enjoyable for me to work with, uh, with colleagues uh, to, again, to expand access to, to treatment. And um, I certainly thank you for encouraging people to, to check the, the PCSS. There are other support systems available also. You know, the AETC, which is the Educational Network for AIDS, also offers some uh, trainings and support for uh, people prescribing, um, you know, buprenorphine. So, so there are other support systems, but I think PCSS is, is one of the largest and certainly worth checking. Now, there's also recently there's been a movement of of doctors. You know, there's a lot of talk about uh, burnout in in the community of physicians. You know, doctors are burning out of their jobs. They're working for uh, abusive healthcare systems. You know, large hospitals, what they call big box clinics, and you know, and and they're, you know, and now so there's now a movement where you know doctors are you know they want to get away from the the burnout. And there's even you know an issue with physician suicide. And so doctors who feel overwhelmed with, with having to deal with the, the electronic health records and, and the bureaucracy, they're, they're looking to, to drop out and to start their own small practices, you know, what generally what are considered to be micro practices, you know, where they, maybe it's just a, a doctor in, in a small clinic, maybe one room and, and maybe a small staff or even no staff. And the, the one issue is that doctors, you know, they, they think, you know, how is that going to work? What, what is my business model going to be? You know, how do I take insurance? How do I... Uh, get patients, you know, how do I advertise? And and one easy way to start is just to, if you want to become part of the, the micro-practice movement, also become part of the addiction treatment movement and establish a large part of your practice just to get started. It's it's fairly easy to get trained in how to provide treatment for opioid use disorder and, and make that a, a, an important part of your practice. Right, and PCSS also supports, you know, with the business plan and kind of thinking about uh, you know, kind of business aspects of, of running addiction treatment uh, practices. Um, so we can help you on logistics, uh, regulatory aspects, the same way as we can help you on clinical aspects to do that. And I think, you know, again, it can be very, whether you can practice alone or you can actually, uh, you know, practice with the addiction treatment program in your community that doesn't have a medical provider. Most of those programs really crave for medical providers because they do know that offering medication and medical help uh, can increase their success rate. So they do want to um, 
collaborate with a medical provider in the community. So reaching out to those to those programs and offering medical services can be also very rewarding. And there are patients there ready for you to start seeing. You don't have to really do your own looking for patients um, if, if, you, if, you, if you're concerned that you may not have enough patients to start with. And, and in the book, you, you even describe what's called the, the hub and spoke model, where there's an addiction treatment, you know, maybe a large addiction treatment facility. They see the patient, get them started on treatment, and now they want to pass that patient along to, to what the spoke, which might be a, a small practice like me, and I would continue the maintenance for the patient. And if, if at some point, if they need, you know, more intense treatment, I can refer them back to the hub. Exactly. So one of the concerns, you're right, the doctors who don't have experience is that those patients will be very difficult to manage and may have a bad outcome. So who wants to, you know, who wants to expose themselves to do that? So the hub and spoke model offers a solution to that, which is that, as you were saying, you know, uh, and those programs actually have been very successful in, sev- in Vermont, in, now in Baltimore and several other states are embracing this model because it's much easier for the primary care provider who is even, you know, uh, who is not a specialist to, to practice in the community when they get stable patients from the hub and they just maintain stability. They always have a way to contact the colleagues at the hub to, um, you know, to consult when the patient, when there are some issues with the patient and when the patient is too difficult to manage, they can refer a patient back to the hub and then when the patient is stable again, they can return to the spoke, to the practice and that way they can manage hundreds of patients, you know, up to 275 patients, which is the maximum, but that's, that's plenty for most doctors and, and feel that this is manageable. So that's another model you write to see where are the hubs in your community with your state you know, has those hub. You know, there are other new, uh, you know, new efforts to expand access to treatment. Uh, states have received a lot of money recently um, to fund addiction treatment programs, and they are very eager to uh, give uh, training and mentoring and maybe even financial help to doctors willing to treat those patients. So you should definitely call your state single state agency for addiction treatment to see if they have any ways to um, help you get involved and uh, be a part of the system. Uh, a network of, again, providers in the state that um, can offer treatment. So that could be another way for you to get involved if that's what you, you feel like would be more rewarding to have more control over your how you practice medicine. Yeah, I've heard of several programs. I think there's one from Yale University. I know there's one here in Palm Beach County, uh, where, and I, I think in, in Mississippi there's uh, several where treatment is initiated in the emergency room and and then there's an ongoing program and patients are able to get their treatment completely paid for if they can't afford it, if they're uninsured, and uh, they get the full spectrum of treatment, the medication, the counseling, and, and the doctor's visits all included. And, and it starts in the emergency room. Right. Right. So there's many models and new models of providing treatment that, that uh, you know, people are trying, you know, starting in the emergency room is one of those models because that's where, you know, patients often come in crisis and it's easy to get them engaged. You know, the walk-in clinics, you know, the kind of urgy care type of model is another model that there is kind of low threshold of entry into treatment. Obviously, there, you know, opioid treatment program in your state, patients can go there and get started and hopefully they don't have to wait Although, you know, some states there is a wait list. And so there is many, many ways to engage people with treatment. I strongly believe that once the patient is on medication, their view of, of getting help change pretty quickly. You know, many people are very ambivalent about stopping drugs because they fear of what their life will be like without drugs that will be unmanageable. 
because you know they no longer have this sure way of um, of dealing with distress. But once they are taking the medication, they're thinking about themselves, about their life, about the future. It really rapidly changes, and they are much more eager um, to accept treatment, to believe that treatment is possible, that life without heroin is a, is a real possibility. So getting people on medication as soon as possible, of course, safely, um, you know, is a priority. And I strongly believe that the programs that allow patients to get started whenever they are ready is a solution to the problem. Patients should be able to walk into any emergency room at any time and ask for help and get started. A uh, patient with overdose will be definitely brought to an emergency room, right, and treated for acute overdose. And the same should be the case for patients who want to stop using drugs. They, there should be really no barriers for them to, to enter treatment, get you know evaluated and started, and of course have free treatment, especially at the beginning, to allow them to, to do that because those are some of the barriers that we talked about, right? No providers, insurance barriers, you know, many other barriers that keep people out of treatment whenever they are ready. And there's just so much here in this book that we, we couldn't possibly cover at all. I mean, for, for, for how families can deal with the addicted uh, family member or loved one and how they, you know, don't, don't kick them out on the street, don't do tough love, doesn't work, not, not for opioid disorder. Uh, you you want to um, get them medication treatment and, and you know, and, and don't, you know, hold back your anger. And you talk about motivational interviewing, which you, oh, I wanted to say you describe it in a way that makes it a lot easier than I, I took a class that included motivational interviewing training. And uh, but when I read the way you describe it, it, it makes perfect sense. Sure. No, thank you. Thank you for that. And again, book has a lot of like simple, I was trying to make a very simple tips and guides for the, for the families because they often, you know, again, so confused when they are caught in this, you know, crisis, the constant crisis of, of having an addicted family member, then, um, you know, then, then simple suggestions can be very helpful, some things to try. You know, many of them may not work, but, but definitely there are some better suggestions than others. And the one that you mentioned, the, the one that you often hear from the traditional treatment providers, which is to, to kind of distance yourself from the patient until they are ready to come back to you, um, maybe is acceptable for other addiction, but I strongly feel is unacceptable for opiate addiction because we know that many of those people will not come back because we'll be dead. Mm-hmm. Uh, you really cannot afford this um, this kind of strategy. I don't think it's it's you know it's acceptable. Yeah, and, and part of that also is the uh, harm reduction. You talk a lot about that, providing clean needles if someone is just not going to stop using the heroin places where a person can go in certain communities to be monitored and where they check, they'll check the heroin and make sure that it's not poisoned with fentanyl or carfentanil or whatever they put in it. And uh, they'll, they'll make sure that the person doesn't die, you know, administer Narcan if necessary. And I just I want to finish with the most important thing, uh, Narcan. I mean, we have fire extinguishers in the wall everywhere. Now we have automated uh, defibrillators in the wall every, almost everywhere. Uh, we should probably have Narcan on the wall everywhere. And, and until then, you know, everybody can get a hold of Narcan and, you know, have it with them in the car at home. You know, you can save a life. Naloxone, Narcan, uh, reverse an overdose and save someone who's turning blue and dying because they're not breathing after using too much uh, opioids. No, oh, that's a good suggestion. I've never heard put it that way, but I think it, it, it makes a lot of sense. I think it will be worth looking at how much it costs to have defibrillators everywhere and how often you actually, how much it costs to maintain them and how often you actually use them. 
and and what are again the costs of having the the Narcan available, which is extremely extremely inexpensive or can be extremely inexpensive medication, you know should be extremely inexpensive medication. Let me put it this way, and why not to have it available whenever there could be a, a medical emergency, like in the public areas, you know airports, schools, universities, medical clinics where defibrillators are. I th- I think that's a, that's a very very um, good point. Um, because you're right, we have to do everything. Narcan, of course, is not going to cure opiate addiction. You know, if you, you can reverse overdose, but unless you get someone into treatment, they're much more likely to have another overdose, and, and many of those people do eventually die. The only way to um, prevent, um, reduce the risk of death is to start them on medication as soon as possible. But, of course, Narcan will, will you know, will allow them to, to live to be able to, to do that. Uh, but unless... You know, Narcan reversal is followed by the the, the medication. Uh, I don't think we're there yet. I would want to see all people who have Narcan at least be offered medication. They may not, of course, take it. They may refuse it, but uh, they should be offered. You probably have seen yesterday in the paper that there was the lawsuit. Uh, the prince's family is suing the hospital, claiming that he was seen for overdose a week earlier in the hospital, and they're claiming that he was not offered uh, evidence-based treatment. Uh, now, of course, we don't know what really happened, but but I think it just exemplifies and brings to people's attention the fact that if you have someone who comes to the hospital with the overdose, this is an amazing opportunity uh, to have them started on to treatment to, to prevent the risk of overdoses in the future. And even though many people will refuse it and they have right to refuse it, many will accept it. And that's really what we want. We want more and more people having a, an accessible, available, and effective treatment. And that's something that the you know these treatment centers should consider the 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 inpatient treatment center the the residential treatment centers where they don't believe in medication or, or just short term use of buprenorphine you know that 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 could become an issue for them long term uh, you know liability uh, maybe even NA the uh, NA World Services Organization with this document and, and I'll just read what it says it says in NA addiction is treated by abstinence and through application of spiritual principles so they're actually saying NA is saying we we treat addiction. We treat it with abstinence. Right, uh, right. And they shouldn't be providing any treatment for a medical condition. Right, right, exactly, exactly. They, they do appear to families as if they provide treatment. No, they provide spiritual support and community and, you know, a lot of help, but they do not provide treatment. This is what they offer is not compatible with the, the evidence-based treatment the way we, we want um, the rest of the medicine to be guided by, you know, the principles. But but they can provide very useful additional service. And, um, you know, the, the whole idea is how to, how to bridge those those two perspectives um, because again at the end you know we care about the patients rather than about organizations <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, again th- this book coming out soon overcoming opioid addiction the authoritative medical guide for patients families doctors and therapists and everybody in that in that group should ha- should get this book everybody every doctor in the country should or in the world who has access should read this book uh, anybody who, who knows anybody uh, as a loved one family member who, who's addicted uh, needs to read this therapist, especially. Um... It's it's available actually now, uh, as of today. I think it's available on Amazon and and should be hopefully available everywhere. We we put it down in paper ba- book uh, paperback, so it's inexpensive from the beginning, 
And, and again, we would like, you know, as many people to be able to uh, have access to information, uh, you know, contained there as possible, because I think that there is really lack of reliable information on the market. You know, searching internet can be helpful for many things, but I don't think it's helpful to help you make decisions about what's the right treatment. I think there's too many confusing information in the, on the internet about treatment. Um, so hopefully the, the book will fill the gap. And thank you so much for inviting me and, and talking about this book and, and again, for doing this work and, and educating others um, and bringing everybody else up with their progress in science because we've made a lot of progress that, that should really be, you know, trickled down to the patients and the communities. Uh, get this book and thank you very much. Thank you for coming on. I really appreciate it. It was definitely a pleasure talking to you and, and thank you again. Oh, likewise, likewise. And, and keep, up, keep up the good work with the podcast and all the best to you. Thank, thank you, Mark.